Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, Easter, according to the Gospel of John, with a message titled, It Is Finished. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When we come to John 19, 28 to 30, well, we read the last words of a dying king. Our passage says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So John begins with the words, after this. So after what? He means after the events that led to this moment. And those events include his arrest, his trial, the savage beatings he endured, the slander that he bore, the journey through Jerusalem carrying his cross until the collapse because of blood loss and the lack of strength. And then he's crucified and hangs on a cross for six hours. And after that, that is, at the end of these things, which would lead to his death. After this, says John, and then he adds the words, knowing that all was now finished. Now, that word finished in various forms in Greek is used three times in these three verses. It's used here, all is now finished. Then, although we can't see it in our English translation, it's the same root word that's used in the word fulfill. That is, this was to fulfill, that is, to finish scripture. And then, of course, it's used the third time when Jesus says, it is finished immediately before he dies. You know, I can't even begin to express how important that word is in understanding the death of Jesus and more so in understanding the theology of what occurred at the death of Jesus. So the Greek root word, it's the word telos. Yeah, it's used three times in the chapter and then six additional times in the entire book. Again, that's not readily apparent in any English translation that we use today. But the reader of the original Greek would have noticed it immediately. So I won't cover all the examples, but let me deal with two of them. The first example I want to use is that of John 13, verse 1, which is the account of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples on the Thursday in the upper room where he also shared Passover with them. That was just before they went out to Gethsemane where Jesus would be arrested. But let's get back to the washing of the disciples' feet. So John 13, verse 1 says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So that word end, that's our word. Now, if we read through John in a hurry, we might not think about it. What did John mean when he said he loved them to the end? I mean, did he mean to the end of his life? That is, he kept loving them all the way until he was crucified on the cross to the end of his life. So it might be that when John uses that word, telos, translated end, that that's what he meant. He loved them until the very last breath. And then even after that, he loved them to the end of the ages. Now, if you think about our English word end, well, you will with a bit of reflection, notice that we use the word end in at least two ways. First, we use it in a way that we're most custom with using it. You know, I've come to the end of this book, we say. It's the end of my shift at work or something like that. End means it's all over now. But we also use the word end to mean the goal or the aim of something. You know, a professor might tell his class, 
The end of my instruction is wisdom in the heart of my students. So I hope you see he uses the word end to mean the goal for which he aims. That is, he wants this to be accomplished. Now, what if Jesus, in washing the disciples' feet, was not signaling that he would love them to the end of his life? What if he was saying this washing of his disciples' feet was the end to which he loved them? Now, it's this second understanding of the word end or tell us that the earlier translators of the NIV used. See, they translated it not as he loved them to the end, but he showed them the full extent of his love. I hope you see that. End was goal, the aim, the fulfillment. So here is, you see Jesus kneeling before each disciple, taking the role of the most menial slave. He's loving them to the end or to the fulfillment of everything that he meant when he used the word love. Okay, that was John 13, verse 1, and the use of the word telos. So let's go now to my second example of how John uses that word, and that's found in John 17, verse 4. It's a part of Jesus' high priestly prayer just before the cross, and here's what he says. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Again, reading the English, we don't see the connection, but the word translated as accomplished Well, that's the same root Greek word, telos. But here it's rightly translated as accomplished. Uh, We could have translated also as, I've ended the work you gave me to do, or I've fulfilled the work you gave me to do, or I've brought the work you gave me to do to a highlight. You see, with that as a background, let's come back to this statement. When John describes the death of the Messiah, he decided to use the word telos, or end, not once but three times. And it will be our job to listen closely as we can, for John wants us to know something very important about the death of Jesus. Very well, let's look at the first use of the term. John says that as Jesus is now aware that his body is dying, that Jesus knew that all was ended or finished or completed. Again, stop and think about it. Is Jesus saying, oh no, I'm done for? Well, hardly. As we've already seen from our study of John, Jesus, while on the cross, is consciously fulfilling the work that the Father has given him. And as he comes to the point of death, he looks now and is aware that he's accomplished all that the Father wants him to do. He's completed everything the Father wanted him to do. You know, as Don Carson says, it is important not to take those words mechanically, that we think there's nothing at all left for him to do. Rather, at this stage while he's on the cross, He's done everything that should be done at this stage on the cross. There were no loose ends, no frayed edges, no ragged pieces left undone. He had accomplished everything right on time. Now, there's one last thing he must do. John says that at this moment, he says, I thirst. But, says John, he's not saying that because he's so thirsty he can't stand it any longer. You know, John says, just like everything that Jesus did on the cross, he was directing it, fulfilling the words of Scripture. Indeed, this is where we get our second use of the word telos. And what's fascinating to me is that John chooses this word here. In other places, you know, John 13, 18, Jesus says, the Scripture must be fulfilled. There, the word fulfilled, he uses another Greek word, the word plirao. Now, that's the normal word for fulfilled. So, for instance, in Matthew, when Jesus says he hasn't come to do away with the law, but rather to fulfill it, well, that's a variation of that word, plirao, to fulfill. And that's why when we read that Jesus said, I thirst, 
for the express purpose of fulfilling the scripture, we need to stop and say, hey, wait a minute, John. You use a different word here for fulfill. Tell us. You say that Jesus now brought the scripture to its appointed end, to its destined goal, to the culmination of everything. Well then, how did Jesus do that by simply saying that he thirsted? So step and think about that. And remember that this drink that he took just before his death should not be confused with an earlier incident. And Mark records the earlier incident in Mark 15, 22 to 23. Let me read it to you. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. See, Mark's referring to something that was offered to Jesus at the beginning of his crucifixion, not the end. The wine mixed with myrrh that Jesus refused was a sedative. It was designed to dull the pain, to make the agony less intense. Jesus refused that. But now at the end, he says he thirsts, and what he's now offered is not a sedative, but rather, says John, it's sour wine. It was the cheapest of all wines. It's offered to him on a sponge and placed to his lips. It will not dull the pain. Indeed, if it'll do anything, it will prolong his life. In a sense, giving Jesus sour wine was a cruel thing to do, for he was now moving quickly towards death, and this would temporarily revive him, awakening the pain all over again. Notice they don't give him a sedative, they give him the opposite. And in so doing, there's a cruel joke that's being played. The scripture that Jesus brings to a climax now fulfills what is spoken of in Psalm 69, a Psalm of David. Verses 20 and 21, reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. See, Jesus knew what would happen when he asked for a drink. What would happen was not just cruelty, but rather a completion of a prophecy from Psalm 69. Jesus knew that. He knew that even in his last moments, he could expect no compassion, no pity, no mercy, not even one ounce of kindness from his tormentors. We need, as we think about the cross, to see these final moments surrounded by dogs who sought to devour him. That's what Jesus experienced at this moment on the cross, and that's how he brought scripture to fulfillment. There is no event more significant to the body of Christ than Easter. It's a time to reflect on the ultimate sacrifice made by Jesus that paid the price for humanity's sins. To help us reflect on this holy occasion, we put together a special short-form video feature of select scriptures from Dr. John's new series, Easter According to the Gospel of John. We believe this video will help prepare your heart for Easter. So all you need to do is head over to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or visit our website at backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, don't forget to click the subscribe button and never miss another ministry feature video. Thank you for all you do to support this ministry. For more information or to gift this ministry with your support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In Psalm 69, David asks God to pour out indignation on his enemies that God's burning anger would consume his foes. But in the case of Jesus, 
He's the object of God's burning anger against sin. And it is in this, in full measure, that Jesus experienced this in his last moments of life. Now, the third and final statement that involves Jesus' words just before his death, indeed, the very last words from the cross are the words, it is finished. See, rather than extending his life, very shortly after receiving the sour wine, John says, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It has been said that the Greeks thought that the very best oratory, the best speeches a speaker could ever make in public, was to say something very profound in as few words as possible. And much has been said and written about the profound content of those three words, it is finished. As we've already seen, the word finished within this context can't mean I've come to the end of my life. Rather, it must now mean I have accomplished completely everything the Father gave me to do. Not one thing is left undone. The Father sent me into this world, and now I come to this stage where every last detail is accomplished. There's so much I could say about, you know, what these words imply, but let me suggest five things that Jesus accomplished. First, we can say that Jesus finished or completed or accomplished all the prophecies that had been written about him. Not one prophecy was left unfulfilled. You know, we might think of Genesis 3.15, where we are promised that one would come to crush the serpent's head. Or we might think of Isaiah 7.14, that he would be born of a virgin. Or of Micah 5.2, that he, he would be born in Bethlehem. Or that with his coming, he would fulfill the words of Jeremiah 31 verse 15 that Rachel would be weeping for her children as she did when Herod massacred the boys of Bethlehem. We might think of Hosea 11 verse 1, that God would call his son out of Egypt. Or think of the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee and how that fulfilled the words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 9, 1 to 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And how that light shone. <laughs> the deaf heard, the lame walked, the demons fled, the dead were raised, the good news was preached to the poor. Galilee had been in darkness for so long, and now the light had shone, such a light the world had never seen before. And we could mention his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the fulfilling of Zechariah 9 verse 9. And of course, we could talk about his suffering on the cross and the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the man so disfigured, the one from whom men hide their faces. Not one messianic prophecy was left unfulfilled. Jesus' cry on the cross, it is finished, was that in every way he had completed all that was said of the Messiah. It is finished. But that's but just one thing that was finished. The second item that he finished is that he had been sent by God to rescue the lost children of Adam. You know, in Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus announced that he had come to seek and save that which was lost. And in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, it says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And how he did that. You know, we think of Matthew, the man who had been a traitor to his own people, collecting taxes for the occupying Roman army. And with two words, Jesus changed his life. He simply said, follow me. And from that moment, Matthew left the money at his tax station and forsook all his fortune and followed Jesus. Or think of Mary Magdalene, the woman with seven evil spirits. 
Or for that matter, we might think of the demoniac who was filled with a legion of demons. Indeed, to the very end, whether it was Simon of Cyrene or the thief nailed to the cross beside him, Jesus was calling a new humanity to come and follow him. When he says it is finished, he means quite simply that the foundation that he laid for seeking and saving the lost was so complete that it provided the basis whereby untold millions from every tribe and race and nation and tongue would be saved from their sins and reconciled to God. You know, the third thing that was finished is that Jesus had now offered up a perfect sacrifice of atonement before God. That is his suffering, the whole of it, on the cross was sufficient for the sins of the whole world. And we know he did this because the Father gave signs that he was satisfied in the sufferings of the Son. I mean, first remember that the veil in the temple was torn in two, and it indicated that now for the first time, all who came to Christ would find acceptance before the Holy God. And second, as we also know, Jesus was raised from the dead, which is evidence that the Father had accepted the sacrifice of the Son. And third, Jesus is now exalted at the right hand of the Father, and he's been given a name that is above every name. And finally, the sending of the Holy Spirit, who testified to the truth of Jesus, means that the Holy Spirit has been sent to show and honor and glorify the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And for all these reasons and more, we know that Christ's sufferings, his full payment of our sins, is now complete. It's wonderful news. It's that you and I have nothing to add. We aren't accepted before God on the basis of anything we've done or yet will do. Christ did it all. And so I've said that it's finished in the sense, first, that he fulfilled Old Testament prophecies concerning him, not one was left unfulfilled, and second, that he completed the work of seeking and saving the lost, and third, that his suffering fully satisfied the righteous requirements of God. Now, fourth, Jesus could say that it was finished in the sense that he had fulfilled all of the law's righteous requirements. And see, he did it by being perfectly obedient to every one of God's holy laws that are found in the First Testament. He never failed once. He never neglected one small matter of the law. He never colored outside the lines of God's laws. In Matthew 5:17, he had said, Do you think I've come to abolish the law? Rather, I've come to fulfill the law and then when the full observation of every single facet of Jesus' life is examined, we must come to the very same conclusion as the inspired writers. First Peter 2, 22 to 24, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Or we might also remember that the writer of Hebrews comes to the very same conclusion. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yeah, this is our Jesus constantly tempted, experiencing as one who is fully man the temptation to sin, a temptation that was constantly with him, made even worse because Satan was so determined to undo him. And yet at each moment, and with every single command of God, every command the law insisted on, Jesus submitted himself fully to the will of the Father. He is the only human being who ever completely kept the law of God in every detail, and it's for that reason that his sacrifice on the cross was accepted. 
Oh my, it is finished. The life of a perfectly obedient human being had reached its culmination on that cross. And one more item that speaks of the finished work of Jesus. Fifth, it is finished in the sense that Jesus delivered an overwhelming and complete defeat of Satan. You remember what Jesus said back in John 12, 31? He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? And as Paul reminds us in Colossians 1, 13, he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. That is, when Jesus died on the cross, having satisfied the righteous requirements of God, Satan no longer had the right to hold us as captives to his dark kingdom of death. Satan had been defeated on the cross so that Christ is now free to take any of his captives and transfer them from his kingdom of darkness to Christ's kingdom of light. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant that in every way I have completed all that the Father called me to do. And then says John, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well done, good and faithful servant, and all we're left to do now is to untrust our souls to him. I ask you, my friend, on this Easter season, are you still trusting in your own works and what you've accomplished and how moral and righteous you've been in order to be accepted by the Father? Let me tell you about your life. You're unable to say it is finished. Let me tell you about Jesus' life. He can say it is finished. And for that reason, don't trust yourself. Trust in him. Commit your life to him. God bless you. Thanks so much, John. You know, how are we supposed to understand the significance of Jesus' words, it is finished, personally? Well, I want to say on a personal level, Ben, that we need to abandon all sense of doing something for our salvation. We need to say, I have offered to God nothing, and Christ has offered everything. What he has done is a complete sacrifice, and it requires nothing of me but to rest in the sufficiency of what he has done. He has completed a perfect work before God, and all I'm required to do is revel in it, trust in it wholly, and live my life in that sense. So, That's what I think it means to us personally. God has done it all through Christ. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Easter According to the Gospel of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. As cherished children of God, we all share the great commission to spread the gospel across the globe. This is no simple command, but if we partner with each other, we stand a much greater chance of enriching the lives of many with the good news of Jesus Christ. This month to commemorate the importance of this partnership, Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating our monthly partners who bless this ministry with their consistent gifts. Thank you so much for your continued support. Our Bible teaching and engagement resources simply cannot exist without it. By donating monthly, you join our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and gain access to all its unique benefits. To find out more about these exclusive benefits or to become an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner, 
just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.